Hola, bienvenidos to my gente in collaboration with Boyle Heights Beats. And to our listeners who tuned in, thank you so much. My name is Samantha Mulitz. Just very quickly, we want our audience to know that we are a radio program and podcast brought to you by the community news outlet Boyle Heights Beats. This is a program that trains local high school students to publish a community newspaper, and it also produces this very own podcast. I've already introduced myself, though more info about me is that I am a 21-year-old artist, activist, organizer, and facilitator based in East Los Angeles. I love to create workshops and dialogues around social justice as it relates to the function of wellness in our communities. My passion has led me to discover and engage with the self-help graphics and arts community in Boyle Heights. Currently, my role as artivist allows me to combine arts and activism while engaging with tenants to uplift their experiences renting in Los Angeles. Prior to this, I was in the first Self-Help Graphics Youth Committee in 2019 where I fell in love deeper with civic engagement under the guidance of Self-Help Graphics. I thought this would be an interesting podcast as we discuss the transformative space that has empowered the Eastside community for decades and the future of Chicano, Chicana, and Latinx art as it undergoes renovations. This is my first podcast, and hopefully not my last, since I always have something to talk about. For this episode, I am highlighting the history of the self-help graphics and art space as they come to their much-deserved renovation. Founded in 1970, Self-Help Graphics and Art established itself in 1973 as a nonprofit organization dedicated to the production, interpretation, and distribution of prints and other arts media by Chicana, Chicano, and Latinx artists. In addition, their multidisciplinary and intergenerational programs promote artistic excellence and empowerment of communities by providing access to space, tools, trainings, and resources. Today, I will be interviewing master screen printer Dewey Tafoya and executive director Betty Marine of Self-Help Graphics. Up next, we'll have Dewey Tafoya, who is the master printer at Self-Help Graphics. Dewey Tafoya is a visual artist and screen printer from Boyle Heights. Growing up in an era of nightly helicopter melathion spraying, police street sweeps, punk rock, and oldies, his practice is heavily influenced by the urban landscapes, cultures, and communities of inner-city Los Angeles. Often using satirical humor, much of Dewey's work tends to deconstruct historical contexts and then reconstructs them from the viewpoint of the oppressed and or the underrepresented. Dewey has been a part of the Self-Help Graphics and Arts creative community for nearly two decades, beginning as a volunteer for the organization and then teaching for Self-Help Graphics via the Los Muertos Community Arts Work workshops. As a lead teaching artist, he supported the reboot of the Barrio Mobile Art Studio program and continues to teach printmaking for the Soy Artista Summer Youth Program. Dewey has degrees in American Literature and Chicano Studies from UCLA and over the past seven years he has printed for many artists in the Self-Help Graphics and Arts Professional Printmaking Program. Hey Dewey, thank you so much for being here with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Okay, you know, here. Can you describe how you got introduced to self-help graphics? Yeah, I mean, growing up in East Los Angeles, I've always known about self-help graphics as a venue for like punk rock shows and friends quintes and stuff like that. So it was always a place that we would go to and kind of, or, or myself, I would go and take a sneak peek and look around and kind of think, what do they do here? No artists come here and they paint their faces like skulls and they dance around, but... I didn't really have like a grasp of what it was exactly. I just knew that it was a space that artists would go to and do art. 
But for me, a kid from the hood, I think the idea of making art was far removed from any kind of aspiration that I had. It, it, it wasn't something that I thought about. It, it wasn't my life. It just was like, oh, okay, cool. It wasn't until I was in college that I had an opportunity uh, to do a seminar. So I went to UCLA and I majored in Chicano studies. So one of the classes was a seminar class where you had a volunteer. It was a community service learning class is what it was, but they called it body of service learning. So you had to pick a, a nonprofit and, and work that quarter with them and then report back. They gave you like this big old book of, of nonprofits to choose from. And some of them were kind of, you know, where I knew I was just going to be filing and, and doing paperwork and it was kind of boring. So then Sappho Graphics came up and I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's close to my house, which was the, the key thing because I didn't want to travel anywhere. And it was also an opportunity for me to go in there and kind of check it out and see what's happening and, and to have an excuse to kind of go there and do that. Because I felt like I, not being an artist or not knowing anybody, I couldn't just walk in there and be like, hey guys, like look at me. I want to do art, which is kind of, which I think I've done a lot to try to change that, where you could just come in and be like, hey, I want to make art um, and not be intimidated or not feel like you're not included. So it was through that class that I kind of, I interned, it was kind of an internship. And when I went, I was like, hey, I'm here for my body service learning class. And they're like, okay, cool. Like go sweep the floor and go do this thing. So I think for the first few weeks I would go, they thought I was doing community service. Like when you get a ticket and you have to do stuff. Until I was like, no, I'm here from UCLA, and this is part of like our program. And they were like, oh, um, go sweep that other floor. <laughs> so I was just kind of um, then figuring out like what to do with somebody. And eventually, I did different things. I they used to have a, a print studio. I mean, a, um, a print room where you just sit in there and people come and you show them the prints and you come with gloves. So I did that for a little bit, and it wasn't until. Um, it was one day, one day, um, they asked me if I could babysit supplies for a workshop for an event in downtown LA called, I think they still have it, Fiesta Broadway. I think they have it, but it's called something else now. So basically my job was to go there with all the supplies at 10 in the morning and just kind of seal the supplies so nobody jacks it until the artist got there like at one o'clock or something. So just kind of like, here, go do this thing and we'll sign off hours. So I went and then I forgot which workshop it was, but the workshop instructor was Ophelia Esparza and, and her daughters. But I hopped off for a little bit and I was like, oh, this is cool. I really enjoyed interacting with the public like that and kind of working with people. So that was like my first glimpse into kind of like what they do. And then quickly enough, internship was over and I just went back to school. The following year when I graduated, I got a call from a woman named Asisenda Maldonado, um, who used to work at Sappho Graphics back in the day, like when I first started interning. And I think she did relations or, or some kind of workshops, or I don't remember what the title was, but she asked if I can be part of the Day of the Dead celebration this coming year and if I was willing to facilitate a workshop. So I was like, sure. So the workshop I facilitated was paper mache skull. So that was my first Day of the Dead workshop and kind of my first entrance into Sappho Graphics, and I've been doing day-to-day workshops ever since. That was 2003, so it's kind of close to almost 20 years. I've, I haven't missed a workshop since then, so it's been pretty cool, and I think that's 
with the start of my journey as kind of like an intern and then invited to to host a workshop for Day of the Dead, which is really fun. And it was a great chance for me to meet other artists and, and, and other friends and, and other folks and just kind of share space with them. But that was kind of my the initial start. And then I think um, just meeting friends and going to shows, I got really interested in wanting to make my own art. Because I, I didn't feel like I came myself up as an artist, but I came as someone willing to, who knew about art and I had friends who were artists and I would go to art shows and I think, you know, being from the hood, you always have friends like, come to my show, come to this. So I've always seen that, but never really thought I could make something that people would like or, or something, you know, that people would share interest in. But I think being at South Hop really inspired me to create. Um, and it was at South Hop where I first became aware of screen printing. And they had a master printer at the time who was really knowledgeable, Jose Puche, and he was a master printer, and he was in charge of the print studio. A really interesting guy. He was really interesting. He had his good side and his bad side, so he always wanted to be on his good side because the bad side was not too friendly. But, you know, I mean, I think just trying to carve my space and self-help and, and kind of create my way, and yeah, that's how I learned. You mentioned some of the roles that you've had since the beginning. And so now in this space and time, what are some of the roles you still do and how do you engage with community members? Well, I think for me, it's a community I grew up in. So engaging with community members is engaging with my friends and my peers and all the folks that I know, including like my tias and tios and your tias and tios and everybody's tias and tios. But I feel like my role now is master printer, and I feel like working with self-help throughout the years and all the different roles are all kind of combined into this role. So I still have all those other roles, but I also have this role now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's something um, as far as workers and, and people kind of who work in these spaces, it's not just one role that we have. It, it's kind of a combination of different roles whether it's community engagement or, or whether it, it's hosting a workshop or whether it's organizing an art show or whether it's working on a print or whether it's sweeping up the floor or keeping the bathroom clean or, or, or you know, all those necessary things that all go together to kind of run the space. And for me, when I first started at Self Help, there was a whole full staff and there was lots of folks um, that helped run the organization. And during that time, I think from like 2003 to 2010, um, I might be wrong because my memory is not as good, where that all kind of collapsed. And then eventually there was no staff and the building closed and it started up again brand new without any staff or or anybody. Um, So I was invited um, by a friend of mine named Victoria Delgadillo, and she also works as a BMAS, and she was like, hey, I have my friends who are on the board, and they need help. So basically, we would clean the bathrooms and sweep the floor and do all the things on a volunteer basis. So we actually help do workshops for daily day on a volunteer basis and just ask people to kind of donate their time to kind of do stuff. So I think for me, that's where I really bought in where it, it, it gave me a little bit of ownership, where I was like, hey, I'm seeing these people and, and they're putting in a lot of sweat equity to keep this place going. That really inspired me to kind of help out and be involved as well. So I, I think that's kind of what anchored me to the space 
and, and made it important for me to help engage with community. Because I think it's been something ever since day one, like how do we engage in community? Like we have this thing, like how do we become part of this? And of course, there's tons of people that are saying, you should do this and you should do that, but you know, how do you actually do those things? So even now, you know, after almost 50 years, you know, we're still trying to figure that out. It's still not something, there's no answer to that, right? Like you, you do different things to engage community. Communities are always changing. So it's always like, how do you change with the change of communities? How do you change from communities that are families to communities that are single parents to communities that don't have kids? So it's all those things. You gave some details to what it means to be a master printer. Can you discuss what that title means to you? Um, you know what? Oh my God, the title means a lot to me. It's something that I would have never, ever imagined doing. Like first coming to self-help and meeting a master printer. I didn't go to school for printing. It was something I learned at self-help and I learned from a kit that was given to me from Michael's. And it, it was all just kind of a quest for me to learn this one thing because it was something I was really into. And, and this is before I had any interest in printing and I was working at Self-Help Graphics, but the master printer wouldn't let anybody in the studio. He was very like, no, you stay out, which is kind of like, I get it now. <laughs> um, so it was kind of like, all right, I'm not gonna have any help, so I needed to figure this out. So I had that kit and I kind of made some prints and I made a couple of prints from just drawings. And then of course people were like, hey, where'd you get that shirt? That's cool. And of course that was like light bulbs going off in my head. And then that just kind of inspired me like, okay, I really need to learn this shit. I need to do what I can to learn it. So I read books, I watched YouTube, I printed my ass off. I mean, I did everything and I made all the mistakes that you could make. And I think what makes somebody I don't know if I'm a master. Um, I don't know if I'll ever master like what I do, but I feel like part of, of becoming knowledgeable is making lots of mistakes and knowing how to correct the mistakes. That's kind of what the job is, is to take something, look at it and be like, okay, let's do this. And then knowing how to correct it if you need to correct it. Can you give the listeners an idea or estimates of how many prints you've worked on or helped Oh man, um, the number is actually not that big when you're thinking about like like prints here at Self of Graphics. It might be like maybe forty, close to forty, like prints, and that's just working with Self of Graphics on my own. I I can, I think just my own prints and friends' prints and friends of friends' prints. I think when I first started, I was I was that guy like, hey, you have a you want to do this? Sure. And of course, not knowing how to do it, I would go about these things and, and kind of figure it out and kind of do it. But that's a good question because I never thought about like how yeah. many. And I thought that question would be interesting as well because just looking around your studio, so many prints and you did most of these, I'm going to assume. I did most of these or I had part in mm -hmm. some of them. <laughs> yeah. How have you developed as an artist in this environment and the environment provided to you by self-help graphics? I think I developed as an artist at Self-Help Graphics, uh, and I think the environment is just being surrounded by creative people and other artists and other folks who are interested in the arts. Um, like I said, when I came to Self-Help Graphics, I was a student, I was familiar with art, like I had friends who are artists and musicians, 
So I think that was my first kind of glimpse into the art world, but I never really had any intention of being an artist or, or wanting to do that. I wanted to be a high school English teacher, like that was what I went to school for. But definitely being at Soho Graphics is inspiring and intimidating, you know what I mean? Because you are working here. There are artists who, who walk in here who are really well-known artists. So it's kind of exposing yourself and they'll come in and be like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh man, like, don't look, don't look at my drawing, don't look at this thing. But I think, you know, for the most part, um, you get a lot of positive feedback and, and that keeps you going. And I think just knowing people like that and having friends like that who, who really root for you is really important. I grew up in, in Boyle Heights. Like I said, artists and being an artist was not on my radar at all. Like, at all. Like, that was not something... Even though, you know I mean, we had murals and we had lots of art around us, but it, it wasn't something as as kids that we, we thought we could actually do. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the infamous Masa piece of yours? <laughs> um, the infamous Masa piece is my corn rocket. Um, it's a non-GMO rocket. And I think it, it, as of most of my print ideas, it just comes from me being a nerd and wanting to make stuff. I think growing up and watching TV, I had soaked in lots of pop culture, or whether it was American pop culture or Latin American pop culture from TV, and just watching lots of TV and seeing lots of things, and always being aware that the things I was seeing never involved people like me, or my face wasn't in any of those scenes. So as I got older, I learned how to kind of manipulate images. I was like, you know, I could make things how I wanted to see it or how I see it in my brain. So I think the Masa idea was definitely my nerdiness because I used to be really into the space shuttle. I used to have a bunch of books about the space shuttle and kind of taking those kind of ideas and making something that's kind of funny but also kind of makes you look twice at it um, and then also makes you think of, of, of what that image can represent. So definitely it's a funny image. Uh, it makes you look at it like, Masa, what? But then also the whole idea of corn rocket and GMO and all that stuff comes up as well. So I, I feel like I originally went to school as an English major and now as an artist, I like to think that my images are, are stories. So there's a lot of stories that go behind it and creating layers of, of imagery that are well thought out so that people can look at it and be like, oh, 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 kind of thing. The three O's, you gotta have the three O's. What events are memorable to you about the current and or past location? Oh, the past location is Day of the Dead. The best, I mean, we've had great Day of the Dead at, at all the locations. But I feel like the original location was just a lot more together. Original location being? The original location on Cesar Chavez and Gage, Brooklyn and Gage, Galeria, Otra Vez. Um, Just because it was in one location that had the parking lot, had the gallery, had the upstairs. So you could flow all the way through all the spaces and see everything and, and, and see all your friends and see all that great stuff. But I think what happened was it just got, it got really popular and it got really crowded and it just couldn't 
withhold the people. So we had to like figure out how do we have a bigger space uh, and still provide the same kind of vida. So I think uh, that's when they moved to the East LA Civic Center for a few years and they had the event there. And then we moved here and then I was trying to figure out how to do it here. And here's a little different because we have it on one side, we have it on the other side and it's all kind of separated, which makes it a little bit less intimate. And I feel like a lot of artists or a lot of friends now who weren't artists back then, who are now great artists, we all kind of came together back then. So for me, those are the salad days, so to speak. How do you feel about the renovation and what are you most excited for? Oh man, um, being with Self-Help for a number of years, almost 20 years, I've seen lots of changes. And I've also felt the anxiety of having to move and having the space closed, not just once, but a few times, whether it was because of lack of funding or, or the roof collapsing or, or these different things. So I'm really excited about the renovation. I'm really excited that they have ownership of this building just because that's a big thing. You know, it's a big thing for an arts organization, an arts organization of color, an arts organization that's been around for only 50 years. <laughs> And I'm saying that sarcastically because there's arts organizations around for a year and they have money and they have a space and it's all air conditioned and it's great. But I think to have a new building and a space not only is good for the staff, but for the community. Because you know, I think of the Sawyer Freestyle, which you had, and the kids come here and they're sweating in the summer. It'd be great to have a space for them to come and be cool and work comfortably and for folks to come and have meetings and be comfortable. So definitely, you know, having the space in which we own and all the responsibility that comes with it. I feel like we've had the responsibilities, but now we'll have the space. What does the self-help graphics legacy mean to you? That's a great question. Um, I mean, there's lots of legacies, like the dark legacies. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think for me, oh my God, I'm totally in the shadow of the legacy, especially as a master printer. There's only been a few master printers here. They've all been really influential as far as the making of art here. So for me, I'm definitely realized that I'm under the microscope of all those layers of people, um, especially working here at Southwell Graphics. The legacy is super important. And I feel like talking with other folks and friends who are printmakers, they always remind me of that. They're like, oh my God, Soho Graphics. Like, oh my God, Soho Graphics. And you know, we tend to forget that. But when I meet friends like from San Antonio and they're like, oh my God, Soho Graphics. And it just dawns on me that, you know, we have the space here that we can go to where other places don't. So for them, it's like, oh my God, Soho Graphics. You know what I mean? And here now they're like, oh yeah, Soho Graphics. So definitely, um, the legacy of artists, of creativity. I mean, we can go and talk about like OSCO and other collectives and orgs and Sister Karen and Carlos Ibanez. Um, and, and yeah, oh, oh my God, just all those people um, that have been through the building. I think there was one time that I only knew those names through books. 
and being able to come here and actually meet some of the people and get to know them and become their peers still trips me out. Like I'm still like, whoa, like they talk to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your artistic journey with us. It inspires contemporary Chicanx artists and people like myself. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Dewey as much as I did. Up next, we're going to listen to Betty Avila. Betty Avila's, who pronouns are she, her, has centered her work on the intersection of the arts and social justice with particular focus on community building, public space, and youth empowerment. She grew up in the Northeast Los Angeles neighborhood of Cypress Park and has held positions with the Getty Research Institute, the Music Center, and the Levitz Pavilion. Betty joined Self-Help Graphics Leadership in 2015. She is the chair of the Latinx Arts Alliance and sits on the boards of Little Tokyo Service Center, the Center for Cultural Innovation, and she was a founding board member of People for Mobility Justice. Betty is a passionate arts advocate centering equity and justice as she sat on the inaugural advisory committee for Los Angeles County's Cultural Equity and Inclusion Initiative as an employee of Supervisor Hilda Solis. In 2017, Betty was named one of C-Suite's quarterly magazine's Next Gen 10 in philanthropy, arts, and culture, and an impact maker to watch by City Impact Labs. She received her bachelor's in literature at Pitzer College and has a master's in arts management from Claremont's Graduate University. With that being said, it's my pleasure to introduce Betty Avila. So can you share a little bit about your journey and backstory that led you to this point as executive director at Self-Help Graphics? Sure. Art has always been part of my life, art and culture. Um, I grew up with a musician father. I was a folklorico dancer for 10 years. Um, and I stopped only because I went to, to college. But yeah, I think cultural identity has always been important to me. And one of the ways that that manifested for me was seeking out opportunities in the arts. And so I interned at the Getty Research Institute while I was in college. And that experience opened up just my own um, thinking around the possibility of, of having a career in that work. Um, and also in college, coming to self-help graphics, getting to experience being, I think, held in a, a cultural center in a way that I didn't know was possible. And just having a moment of definition of this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be in a space like self-help graphics. I want to provide these types of creative opportunities and just hold this this community space and be a steward of that. And so, it, yeah, that, that really started me down this path a long time ago. And I was really fortunate to have understood that early on in my career. And so I've worked in different cultural organizations in Los Angeles in museum institutions, performing arts institutions, as well as grassroots performing arts, and now a very community-rooted space like self-help graphics. Can you share a little bit more about your role working at Self-Help Graphics? Sure. I came to the Self-Help Graphics team in 2015. I was a co-director at the time, and I moved into the sort of single executive director role in 2018. In that time frame, we've seen Self-Help Graphics grow. You know, our team is much larger now. We own the building now. We own the property. Recently paid off the mortgage. So there's a lot of really exciting things happening. And we're now in this position of um, having been envisioning the what the space could look like and, and now actually working with an architectural team 
and project management team to implement that vision and bring it forward. What is your collaboration with other community organizations look like? Collaboration with self-help graphics looks like so many different things. It can be really light touch, like in most cases coming to see the exhibition and getting a tour of the space and maybe a workshop. Or, you know, it could be much more in-depth where self-help graphics is going to Mendez High School once a week throughout the semester and working with different students. You know, it, it can also look like curatorial collaborations. Uh, it can look like commissioned work. I, I think always at the center is how are we connecting artists to different parts of the community and, and always thinking about ways to leverage those opportunities to ensure that artists are getting paid and being able to live off of their, their creative work. What were the artistic intentions set for this space and how are they being upheld? Yeah, the, the origin of self-help is very rooted in the Chicano civil rights movement from the 60s and 70s. Um, Sister Karen Bocalero, who's an Italian-American person, grew up in East LA. She grew up on the East Side and her mom was a union organizer. So from the very beginning, the founder of the organization, I think had uh, social justice roots and beliefs. And then when she came at this moment, she found self-help graphics in her garage with artists from the community. I think it was really always about how to create space, how to create accessibility, to build community, to make great art. And that has, over the years, evolved in how it may manifest, but I think always at the core is, this is a space by and for community, and really should be looked at as being for artists, whether you identify as an artist or not. I think we, we look at everybody who walks through our doors as, as artists. How does community engage with the space? Community members get to engage with self-help graphics through a whole slew of, of different avenues. And I think that's sometimes hard to describe to people what self-help is because it's such a dynamic space. And it's hard unless you're here and you can physically see that dynamism in person. So some people come to our Day of the Dead every year and like that is their, their entry point to self-help graphics. And for some, that's where it, that's where it ends. Maybe they don't live so close, right? Um, and for others, it's just the, the entry point to come and see exhibitions or to sign up either themselves or their family for workshops and other types of experiences. Sometimes engagement is with partners, like we shared earlier, whether that's a school or other collectives from across the country, artistic collectives who come to visit or some of our actually colleagues in the institutional art world who are looking to bring self-help graphics prints into those spaces. So it, it's such a, there's so many different ways and I can't even describe all of them. But I will also say that part of what I've heard over the years is that for a lot of people, they came to self-help because they, they came to a punk rock show. And that's what opened up the the space to them and then they understood oh this is actually not just a punk rock venue this is a lot of other things yeah and that being said what would you say is the legacy of self-help graphics and how is it being upheld i think the legacy of self-help graphics is artistic excellence despite the consistent undercapitalization and systemic under-resourcing of this community 
And so the word for me uh, that comes to mind is respache, like that respachismo where you you may not have a lot, but you you get creative, you get inventive, you you make things work, you make things from nothing. And I think this is a space that um, is is so maybe like traditionally under-resourced, but is full of incredible artistic gems, people, collectives. And I think that's really the legacy of Snowplant. You mentioned, you know, we make do with what we have. So it reminds me of this building that we're in. Can you talk about the uniqueness of this building? Yeah, the building that Self Help Graphics fortunately now owns is a former fish packing plant where sea urchins specifically were packed here for a long time. The building is from 1910, so it's over a century old. And it's, I think, like many of the spaces that self-help has functioned out of, the building hasn't been built out for creative or artistic functions, but we figure out a way to make it work. And that was the case in the previous building, which I think is so iconic and people recognize self-help graphics for. Um, It was a former Christian youth organization building. And then, of course, prior to that, here in Boyle Heights on what is now Cecil Chavez. Can you describe that space a little more for people who haven't experienced that first space of self-help graphics? The, well, te- technically the very first space of self-help graphics was Sister Karen's garage mm-hmm. in East LA in a house that she lived in with other Franciscan nuns. The second space was, I think, on the second or third floor in a building on Brooklyn Avenue in Boyle Heights. I didn't get to experience that, obviously. But I'm told that Sister Karen would sometimes go downstairs to the first floor where there was a legal aid office. And when she needed to pay the rent, she would go and force the lawyers to come by art. And the, the building after that, of course, which was that really stunning structure that is covered in mosaic tile by Eduardo Oropesa, you know, that building, it, that one was built out as a sort of center, a youth center. And so it had a salon like an event space. There were different office areas. What would become the studio space that had a glass window. The downstairs had a gallery called Galeria Otraves. And there was also the the store that was created too. And of course, the parking lot in the back, which was known for all types of uh, celebrations and festivals, including Day of the Dead. And so the current building that we're in on First Street in Anderson and Boyle Heights. It, it definitely has an industrial sort of feel. It's a brick masonry building. There's no windows, and which is a function, you know, part of its function as a former refrigerator, essentially, with concrete floors. So it, it has a very sort of raw industrial feeling. And, but I, I think that also gives it an air of, like, this is a space where work gets done. And it's not, you know, super polished and there's, even some of the decorative elements on the floor are aerosol stencils, right? Like it's, it, it feels, I think, very much like a, a creative workspace and a space that also doesn't feel, um, uh, I think some art spaces can feel sort of sterile and not inviting to somebody who may not feel like they're a professional artist, right? And so I think this is a space where it's, it's a safe space for everybody to explore their creativity. How do you expect the future renovations to benefit the community of Boyle Heights? 
Uh, so when we renovate the building, the, the space itself will have windows. There will be natural light in the space. There will be much better circulation, right? So there's certain elements of, of a renovation that are really just about bringing the building up to a healthier experience for people. Of course, the building currently doesn't allow for climate control throughout the space. And so because it's a brick building, it's a sauna in the summer and you can see your breath in the winter. So we'll also have better control over the, the actual climate in the building and it'll be a more comfortable experience for people. And, and ultimately, I think some of the improvements are really centered around carving out a space that is centered on art and creativity and that does properly support, for example, the professional printmaking program that is such a legacy of self-help. That does also build in the needs of, for example, our annual Day of the Dead celebration, which is such a huge part of our cultural contribution locally and uh, nationally. And that does also support the multiple types of uses that self-help sees. And so I think now sometimes we run into like, there's a meeting in one space, but there's also a workshop and there's also a tour and there's an artist in the studio. And so I think we don't want to curb that. We want to actually have a building that supports all of that happening at the same time. Because that's also a big part of what self-help is. People come here to be in community. They're not coming here to be in, a, in an artistic silo at all. You mentioned the creation of all these things that the community can benefit from. I know y'all already started that process a few months ago with the community garden outside. Yeah. And I just want to share my experience with it. I know like sometimes I could be having a very tough day. And yeah, I just go out to the garden and it definitely grounds me, which was the intention. My question is, how will the renovations enhance green space for community to come in and relax. Yeah, thank you for that prompt. So in addition to the actual building transformation, there's a whole uh, plan to transform the exterior of the site. So we will actually lose a couple of parking spots, which is okay, um, in order to carve out a dedicated green space towards the back. We are bringing in adult-sized sycamore trees, which is a direct reference and pays homage to the Aliso tree, which is an important tree and site for the Kanza community. We'll also have other sort of landscaping elements throughout the parking lot so that maybe on some days it's just a parking lot, but maybe on other days there's no cars in the lot and it's all programming outside and it doesn't feel like you're in a lot, but that there is actual green and nature. And we're definitely centering having native plants, drought tolerant plants, and also thinking about how to have that maybe expand onto the building itself. And so the current thinking around the entryway for the building includes a trellis, which will have also plants on it as well. And then the, there would be a large canopy structure that would be attached to the building so that there's also shade. Mm -hmm. So when you think about, I mean, and this is fact that in urban neighborhoods, um, the temperature is so much higher than wherever there's no like trees and no green than in neighborhoods that have a lot of trees and have a lot of green and landscaping. And so for us, it's also, even if you're not coming to self-help, how does the transformation of the site actually change the microclimate here? Um, and then we, we have a, a wish, uh, which is still a wish. We don't know if it's gonna be possible, but our, our wish is that we can actually take the alley behind the building that is locked up and 
between two um, rock fences um, and, and create more green space there. That would be maybe a more quiet, calm, meditative space. And all of it, which would be available to the community, again, whether your intention is to come to self-help for, for our programming, or if maybe you just need uh, a space to sit outside and to be under shade and experience a really beautiful sort of sensory moment in a neighborhood that's pretty, it's pretty industrial, very concrete. So that, that is definitely part of the, the vision for the site too. You mentioned a lot of amazing details right now, and I'm aware that self-help graphics engage with community members to get their input. Yeah. And so what other ways do you plan to engage community throughout the renovation period, which is how long? Yeah. So we expect the renovation to last a little bit over a year. So we would start that process early next year. But you're right, we did consult hundreds of community members on this plan. Like We definitely did not come up with this on our own. And part of that was really talking to the artist roundtable, our artist community members about, you know, what, what does the, the physical space, like the building need to look like? You know, what are the functionalities? And for a lot of the artists, what came forward wasn't always functionalities. It was like a feeling, like this place has to be welcoming. This place has to be warm and inviting. And there are many different comments that have come into really informing what, what the building would look like and how it would transform. And then with the exterior, we really expanded that farther out. You know, we talked to the high school across the street, uh, hundreds of students, parents, general community members. We talked to some of our partners who use the space, uh, the senior housing up the street, because we recognize that, you know, with the transformation of the site comes the opportunity for all of our neighbors and partners to also use the site in a different way. And, you know, that some of the stuff that came up was like, can some of the, the seniors at the housing up the street come down and like do yoga or Tai Chi here now, right? Like, can, can we actually have some of the teachers bring their class and hold their class here at Self-Help Graphics in the future? And so for some of our partners who use this space regularly for community meetings, that may not have anything to do with, you know, self-help's work directly, but that we recognize the space is a, an asset for the community on many levels. So those are all the people and stakeholders who really contributed to this process. So in terms of moving forward, now that we have more or less a concept, I think is that continued engagement so that we're coming back and saying, okay, so this is the point that we're at now. Here's some decisions that had to be made. Here's why we made these decisions. Because as we know, construction projects have lots of fun challenges or opportunities. And so I, I think from, from this point on, it's really about just keeping folks informed and wanting to make sure that by the time that this building comes up and opens, that everybody knows more or less what it's going to look like and what they're going to get to experience. And I'm, I feel very honored to be part of that process because the work that we're doing now collectively in community is going to be experienced by people for decades to come. So does this mean the Barrio Mobile will be out and about more often? Yeah, I think the Barrio Mobile Art Studio is definitely going to be activated um, more so when we're uh, off-site and we won't have the building as our headquarters for a time. And I think we'll, we'll have uh, other partners who will host us for certain programs and 
Uh, and we'll just have to move things around for a little bit. But self-help has done that before for a different renovation. Um, and, and yeah, we're, I think we'll be fine. We'll figure, we'll figure out a way. Next question. What are you most excited for? I'm uh, most excited for this organization that has had to deal with chronic underinvestment from funders, from uh, you know, government for 50 years to be in a position where it's really in a state of abundance and thriving. You know, when I first joined the team, a lot of the, um, the work prior had been finding a place for self-help graphics after it was priced out from the building in East LA. And then once that was figured out, a more long-term situation, could we stay in this building? Would we have to move? Where would we go? Do we have the capacity to purchase it? Because that was a big thing. We don't want to be in a position to have to keep hopping around. And for this place to finally have that level of security and stability and um, be able to move all of its resources and energy and effort into the work, into the mission, into the community serving part of what we do, then that to me is, is the ultimate gift that we can give back. Like, okay, we, we've created this stability and we're now a permanent anchor here. So now let's, let's shift gears completely to, to serving our creative mission. And that's not like a, uh, like a glamorous thing to be excited about, but I think it's so important to call out when spaces, so many of the sister spaces of self-help graphics didn't make it and don't exist anymore because of those challenges that they've experienced. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And we love your input. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. This being my first podcast with Boyle Heights Beats has been amazing. I know I felt very comfortable interviewing Betty and Dewey from Self Help Graphics since I know I've worked around them a lot and just seeing their work ethic inspires me and being in the space also inspires me a lot um, because there's arts literally everywhere on the floor, on the walls. I know Betty and Dewey work so hard and I appreciate their work ethic because they are the ones who really, along with the community members, are the ones who help the space thrive and continue the legacy that Self-Help Graphic created. I look forward to engaging with this space once they're back, hopefully mid-2024 or so, where we should be expecting to see some more green space, some more windows in the space, as mentioned by Betty. And of course, this space is open for community. And I hope to see you there. And that's a wrap for our Radio Pulso podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Samantha Nieves. Thanks to the people who make the Boya Heights beats possible, especially Chris Kelly and Antonio Mejias Rentas. A huge thank you to our radio producer, Jackie Ramirez, who also engineered our episode.